to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. Could not be more delighted today to introduce Joe Horgan. Welcome to the conversation, Joe. Oh, Melissa, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's a fantastic initiative and just thrilled. Brilliant. So I'm going to jump in with a very brief bio and then you and I can get right into the conversation. So, um, so Joe Horgan, Mecca Brands founder and co-CEO, has completely redefined the Australian beauty landscape championing retail innovation and delivering the ultimate beauty experience to millions of customers. In 1997, Joe opened the first Mecca Cosmetica store in Melbourne suburb of South Yarra. And 25 years later, Mecca Brands has more than 4,000 team members and 100 stores across Australia and New Zealand. Joe's on the board of the National Gallery of Victoria Foundation. By the way, I love the stuff you published about that the other day, amazing. Um, the Edward Wilson Trust and is a member of Chief Executive Women. Mecca Brands Philanthropic Foundation, Mecca Empower, fosters educational programs and mentorships to elevate and empower women and girls. Amazing, Joe. So some people, it's possible, won't have come across you before. So let's... Uh, I hope so. I hope I don't talk about myself that much. <laughs> jump into um you know just sharing with our audience who are you who are you as a person and let's jump into your sort of journey Oof. okay the journey so I was born in London I went to boarding school in Somerset at seven I moved to Australia when I was 14 caught up in my parents middle-aged adventure we started at the northern tip of Arnhem Land and we went all the way around the outside of Australia. They dropped me at boarding school in Melbourne. I finished my schooling in Perth and Western Australia. They arrived and went, this is the Garden of Eden. I did an undergraduate arts degree in English and Latin at University of Western Australia. I then traveled around the world for a year, backpacking. Brilliant. <laughs> and then, I did a master's in mass communications in Boston before working for L'Oreal in the UK for two years and then moved back to Australia, worked for L'Oreal for 18 months here. And then with the sum total of three and a half years experience, of course, I had everything I needed to know in my toolkit to be able to start my own business. That's sort of the business side of it. And then I met my husband in Boston and he was a management consultant with Boston Consulting Group. He joined the business, what, six, seven years in and he's the co-CEO and he's just been the most unbelievable support and we really do do everything together. We now have two children, 18 and 15, and they have absolutely rounded us both out and made us be much more balanced because funnily enough they're not at all interested in Mecca they're much more interested in are we watching them at their weekend sports and things like that and um, I have an older brother a younger brother and two parents um, who've been incredibly supportive through the whole journey very close-knit family live here in Melbourne very happy Brilliant. Now, I'm dying to ask, on the back of you saying your parents brought you to Australia on their own midlife adventure, have you done anything like that to your own children? What do you plan to? Do you know something? I haven't. And it's one of the things in some ways I regret because 
you know, I went to six schools, moved continents, then moved continents again to go to graduate school. And I think that those sorts of experiences really build resilience. I don't speak a second language, so I wasn't truly thrust into the deep end of you know, a completely blow your mind new environment. Um, and I did sort of toy with at one moment, oh, we should go and live in Italy, that would be amazing, we should do that for a year. And then, you know, and I love Mecca, I love Mecca so much and it's incredible. Um, so it's like, how did you forget as you came up with that little idea that you actually had the responsibility of all these people and all of these stores, and all of these customers here in Melbourne. And so, you know, every opportunity in life comes with some sort of guardrails. And I, mine was that I just didn't feel that we could sort of up sticks for a year. Did you enjoy boarding school? I went through boarding school as well. Did you, do you know yeah. something? I loved boarding school. No. And I went at seven and had the best time for the first month, then went, oh my goodness, the food's terrible and I'm miles away from home and it's actually getting really cold and there's no heating. This no. is actually not that much fun. Um, but again, I think that uh, I then got really caught up in all of the deep friendships you make, the um, opportunities you have, the independence that it gives you. And I ended up going to three different boarding schools and I wouldn't trade it in for anything. It was not like Enid Blyton's um, no. Prince of St. Clair or Mallory Towers or anything like that, which is what I thought of. I mean, it's like, where's the midnight feasts? Newsflash, <laughs> there are none. But, <laughs> but I really loved it whilst I was there and uh, love it in retrospect. And really, I would have loved my children to go um, to boarding school, but they were having none of it. And like no. most parents these days, sort of, the kids seem to rule the roost. I don't know what happened to that equation, but there has definitely been a power shift in the last couple of generations. A big change. So how did you end up, um, how did you end up at L'Oreal? I know that was very um, sort of influential on your career. How did you end up there? So it's a really interesting question. I was in Boston and I uh, just was completing a, my master's of communications and I had a relatively clear vision of what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, it was really to involve people and it was to involve uh, consumer behavior and how you communicate. And at the same time, um, I was moving back to the UK. And so I really chose about five different um, businesses that I wanted to work for. And in each instance, I wrote directly to the CEO um, and with rather a cheeky letter about why really they should hire Joe Blow random persons. <laughs> and I had I had a meeting at L'Oreal and what particularly fascinated me about L'Oreal was that it was a business targeted towards women mm -hmm. and it was 
the biggest, one of the biggest um, consumer companies globally, probably the biggest that was directed totally towards women. And when I had a meeting there, the general manager was this incredibly dynamic woman. And I remember thinking, huh, I really want to hitch my wagon to you. Yes. You're the horse that I would back. And so I chose, you know, I'd done some theoretical work on it prior, but as I had done the other organizations, but when push came to shove, it was the person I met there and I went, this is the place I want to be with you. Do people send you letters like that these days? Um, <laughs> I feel like this is an invitation. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, poor Joe. No, no, they do. And in each instance, I will always say, great, here's the head of people, um, you know, make the introduction. And uh, the more enterprising, let me know whether or not they've made it through and why. So <laughs> brilliant, hmm. brilliant, fantastic. Okay, so we're L'Oreal in London and end up coming back to Australia. Why? Circling back around. Yes, well, why, why, how? Um, and where did the whole Mecca sort of idea come from? So I'd been in L'Oreal two years in the UK and I was about to lose my residency to Australia and I just had the best time in Australia yes. and I just wasn't willing to put that in jeopardy and my parents moved to Australia for the express reason that they felt that it was the great land of plenty the land of opportunity and the best possible place for children to go, grow up and flourish into the future. And so they literally did you know, upend their entire lives to move here for that, for that reason. And so I think they must have, really must have been rather dismayed when all three of us ended up back in London working. <laughs> and that wasn't the plan. That was not the plan, but armed with the, ex you know, the experience of, or international experience, I was very clear that I wasn't willing to jeopardize a future here in Australia. So I transferred back with L'Oreal. The challenge for me being L'Oreal Australia was I felt suddenly really remote from the mothership, which yeah. was L'Oreal Paris. And over time really became abundantly clear to me that I was not uh, well suited to being a very small cog in a vast machine. Yeah. Just didn't suit the way I sort of did things. So I really, and you know, another thing happened is my father, my parents actually sat me down for dinner one night, you know, super close. And they observed casually for them that my personality seemed to be disimproving. Oh, wow. Stayed in this sort of corporate environment. And so I did look at it and go, that's not my game plan in life to have a disimproving personality, feeling far away from the action. And at that point, I really had this light bulb, um, sort of 
Inspiration is too strong. It was an inkling, I think. So light bulb is too strong, possibly. So an inkling that there was going to be this huge shift in makeup and the beauty industry. And I'd read John Berger's Ways of Seeing when I was um, doing my master's and it had a really profound impact on me. And I felt there had to be a better way in beauty. And, you know, because I had all of those three and a half years experience and knew so much who better it was to upend the beauty industry than me? That was it. <laughs> so, confidence. You know, has that confidence stayed with you throughout your throughout the career, or have there been points where it's wavered along the way? You know, I should be uh, sort of. I shouldn't be so flippant because you know I think confidence is one thing. Mm. I think that I take considered risks rather than confidently running over a cliff, hoping that it won't be too high. And so in this instance, I think I was very aware as I left L'Oreal that there were many an obstacle ahead of me and that really the first thing I needed to do was to gather information. And so that was the big first step was to almost act like a journalist and go, I am going to forensically deconstruct the beauty industry, retail in Australia, property, industrial relations laws, freight forwarding, all of these areas that I absolutely knew nothing about. And I think what gave me the confidence in that realm was the fact that I had an education. And I think that education is not so much what you learn, it gives you the confidence that you can learn. And then you go from zero to 100, and that there is a logical way in which to get there. And so I think that I am confident in life based on having been privileged enough to one, have parents who obsessed about education above all else mm -hmm. to having enjoyed education. I knew, and having had a relatively global experience, I felt that I had as much chance as anybody to give it a red hot go. Has that wavered over time? No, actually. I, I think that I'm naturally a very optimistic person. I think that I've spent 25 years at Mecca and what, this huge three and a half years before that, honing problem solving skills. Yes. And so uh, I think that that has given me the confidence and I think I'm quite good at reading people. Mm. And so I think that if you feel that you can Get to, the get to the bottom of the problem. You can then solve that problem. You have the right people around you to do so. That gives you confidence that you can get through most things. The question I'm asking everyone in this series is, do you think leaders are born or made? Uh, I actually think leaders are, in my experience, not professing to be the yes. expert, in my experience, I would say that leaders are made through 
two paths. One, I think it's the experiences that shape you through life. Yes. Give you, whether it's the education for that confidence, whether it's the changing of circumstances to give you that resilience, whether it's having to get good at reading people as a result. I think it's that plus the circumstances that you are served. And if you think about it, how many books and movies are made with a narrative around people step up to be the leaders they never imagined they'd be. I mean, you just have to look at Zelensky now. Yes. Ukraine, who would have said that a comedian would be the lightning rod of hope yes. for an entire nation during its darkest hour? I think leaders, so that's what I would say, those two things. Yeah. And for you then, can you think of pivotal moments for you that have kind of shaped you from, from being a good to a great leader? Um, well, I am a massive um, and slightly obsessive follower of Jim Collins. Starting yes, love Jim Collins. Love, love, love. Good to great, which I read every year. So I would definitely not profess to be a great leader I think that is a lifelong quest yes um have there been defining moments that have helped shape my leadership abilities yes and I think the most recent would have to be COVID yes I think that has been the most intense with the most to lose, the most responsibility to bear as you get bigger, you've got more people that you're responsible for, lasting for the longest period of time. Mm. And whilst we're all tap dancing as if there is no COVID at this very moment in you know, March 2022, who knows, you know, there's an uncertainty about where it goes from here. And so I would say that sitting there as a leadership team on the Sunday of Scott Morrison's first address to talk about the fact that all non-essential everything yeah. was closing. You know, I have a photograph from that night and there's some very ashen faces around the room. The... COVID crisis committee that we created probably two weeks prior to that. And we had two days in a windowless room with the different teams coming in for two hour blocks, everything from what are we doing about dis distribution? Yes. What are we doing about store teams? What are we doing about stores? What are we doing about e-com? I mean, it just went on and on and on and on. And so I think for everybody that has to have been an incredibly definitive moment. And the, you know, the comforting thing for me after that, I actually work with um, Steph, who I think you've met, and she was here as we were literally rough and tumbling through it all. And for Pete and I and the leadership team, it was pretty instinctive the way we approached it. So it's like, okay, one, let's go to the bank. Yep. and make sure that no matter what happens 
you know, we will have a business in two years' time because we have all worked too hard to you know, watch this go. Two, let's make sure that the teams are healthy and safe and secure. And how can we try and ensure that they have jobs you know, in, in the long term? And how can we make sure that our customers continue to be engaged? And Steph said to me, because she'd just finished a director's course, and she said, you know, the good news is actually that without really even knowing it, you follow <laughs> the exact path of what they tell you to do. And I'm like, well, that's really great. I'm so pleased. <laughs> and so the good news for everybody is, I think that a lot of it comes down to common sense. And I think, you know, we're not through it by any means yet. But during that time, Mecca has, I think, built even stronger relationships with its team. I think we've um, uh, just generated extraordinary connection with our customers. And that's led to us gaining, you know, about five market share points over the last two years and having a completely outsized results against everybody else. And there were lots of really scary moments with that. In terms of making decisions, I'm sorry, I'm going on. See, look, you can see I'm, I'm doing of therapy right now. I'm still reliving this. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. Um, I've I've heard you talk, and you you said to me as well that you, I mean, there would be lots of moments for opportunity for self doubt, for that inner voice to kind of psych you out along the way. But you you're quite deliberate about choosing to think positive. How do you do that? This was super early on in Mecca's journey. It was actually on day two. And this has been recorded lots of places, but you know, we misplaced the first day's taking. And you know, at that moment I could have just gone, how could you be so stupid? How could you ever have a retail business if you can't even keep your hands on the little yeah. bit of money that you did make on day one? And I just went, no, actually, I am not going down this path. I am, in fact, going to celebrate the fact that we had people through the door, that we got through day one, that people were peering through the window, that yeah. you know, it went well. And like anything, because I think everybody knows that the, our inner voice can be our worst enemy unless we check it. I think that it has been an incredibly conscious decision. And it's things like meditation that really does connect you with that inner voice and gives you that mindfulness of if thoughts are bubbling up, you can, you have the space to click them into the positive realm Two, It's practice and nothing comes easily. And I think they say, you know, it takes 30 days to form a habit. This probably takes six months to form a habit, but if you can get there, then I think, it is the great unlocker of opportunity in life, not fearing failure and in fact embracing failure and recognizing that it's a key tenet of having a exciting life. And it brings ultimate happiness. If you can be happy with yourself, then you can be happy with everybody else and you can be happy with your family and you can be happy in what you do. And, 
I think it just brings enormous opportunity. So that's been probably the single greatest unlocker for me is it doesn't matter what happens. And, you know, again, I've talked about this, you know, I've fallen in front of 300 people on a stage in New York and, you know, showed my underwear to 300 global CEOs in beauty. And I literally sort of got up and went, oh, I feel just like Naomi Campbell, you know, when she fell with her big high heels. And, you know, after that, I was a rock star. Yes. Nobody has ever forgotten me. That's the <laughs> positive of it. <laughs> You're a massive supporter of, um, you know, females empowering women. Um, through a lot of the channels that you work. Do you have a perspective on why we're perhaps still not seeing enough traction around females moving into senior executive roles? Look, it's too long a process. It is a process. And COVID has sent that process going backwards you know gender equality was 99 years away it's now 135 years away yeah. so it's COVID has been a catastrophe on so many levels Do you, I don't spend a huge amount of time thinking at a macro level yes. um, why this is the case I think I'm a much more practical person than that and I go okay what are some of the ways in which we can break this down Education is the greatest unlocker, as I've said, to um, opportunity. And by creating a level playing field in education, which is actually only 14 years away for girls to be at the same level of education globally, that I think is a massive opportunity. And then I think um, mentoring you know, young women of talent to say, this is the big world out there and guess what? you deserve a seat at the table. So elbows out, get yourself in there. And so I think if you educate, you mentor, and you then encourage women to back themselves. Sheryl Sandberg said it, just lean in. Lean in, back yourself, you can do it. Gail Kelly talks about the big breaks in her life and they came from bosses who said she could do things when she didn't think she could. And so I think that we just have to um, back ourselves. And as women in leadership, I think we have to scoop up young women and we have to take a bet on them so that it instills the confidence in them that they can bet on themselves. And Mecca is a business that has been built by women. You know, 94% of the team are women. And that was one of the key objectives early on was to say, do you know what? We are going to show that women can build a really strong, vibrant business and that we can support each other and build each other up and not do as we are portrayed in the media of pulling each other down. And I love that. And I think that's an incredibly important message. We all have a part to play in this. Yes. Yes, and it's been my experience, contrary to that sort of media um, of women fighting tooth and nail, absolute contrary. Women are so supportive um, and willing to help. And I could not agree with you more, and I think it's, you know, I think the media has a lot to answer for in that realm because I think, again, the narrative needs to be 
there is an army with outstretched arms wanting to pull you in and lift you up. How important has your own network been in your career? Do you know something? I came to Australia and then to Melbourne with no network. Yes. And I think that having this obsessive <laughs> fascination with information, facts, to back up what I wanted to do as we built the business plan led to very natural networks. Mm -hmm. And I am a huge believer that you are the company you keep. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And so the networks we've built have come through having the same accountant for you know, the entire 25 years of Mecca, you know, and trust me, he wasn't a very big accountant right there back in the day. And yes, don't worry, we now, you know, we have a big accounting firm <laughs> and all that sort of yeah. stuff. But, you know, through to uh, you know, insurance um, people who worked with us at the beginning, through to Steve Bennett, who did George's, who, you know, really saw the potential in this, through to um, Mickey Drexler now in New York, who, you know, sort of recognizes probably the greatest retailer globally and was on the Apple board. And they've all come one step after another. So many of the brand founders are mentors and part of the network. And I think that you gravitate towards people with similar values, a similar approach. And it's incredibly amplifying. But I think the key message I want to make is it's okay not to have any network. It is okay. And start one and it will build organically. Yes. And over time and over time and over time and over time and over time, you can end up with an incredible network, which, you know, yes, I now have an unbelievable Mecca army globally that I can reach out to. And the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, contrary to what people might believe, my life has not been very glamorous in terms of parties, sweetie darling, and launches, and all sorts of things. You know, there's been a huge amount of time, you know, early on doing the stock, and you know, a huge amount of time in front of a computer, and hustling and hassling at airports, and all of this sort of stuff. So it's not like. I've had a huge amount of time to go out there and go, right, I'm going to cultivate a network. It has not happened like that. I'm trying to be very just not to give people a sense of comfort about yes. it's like, where do you start? Yes. And you can, you just start. You just have to start. That's the point yeah. really, isn't it? You just have to start. So, um, Joe, before I ask the final question, I did hear you say that um, you sometimes put some of your success down to luck and you also put some of it down to marrying well. <laughs> Tell us. I know, I know that sounds controversial. And the, so the luck piece, there is no question. I have seen people much more brilliant, much more hardworking, and often with a much bigger vision than I have ever had not succeed for mm -hmm. an array of reasons. Mm -hmm. Plus, I sometimes see the universe deliver on a platter something to me where I just go, <laughs> man, I'm from heaven. Yeah. And so I think luck. I think if you don't recognize that luck plays a huge part, you lose 
your connection with reality and with humanity, actually. So luck, there is no question. Lady luck, I thank thee, so tick. And then in terms of marrying well, again, Cheryl Sandberg talks about this in her book. And you know, the single greatest thing you can do, should you choose to marry or have a partner of yeah. any type, um, you are the, it comes back to, you are the company you keep. And if you are surrounded by somebody who is incredibly supportive, who backs you 150%, who is willing to share the workload of all of the other things that happen in life with you, yeah. and who is your greatest source of um, cheerleading towards the good times and comfort as you come home at night with a heavy head, if you have that in your life, it pumps up your tires in a way that nothing else can. And you know, the opposite of that is actually cancerous. You yes. know, you have someone there who is telling you you're not good enough or that you can't go off and do that or you know, it's not helping with all of the you know baby, babies are a lot of work, right? They're a lot of work and if you don't have that support as you try and um navigate it's hard now if you choose not to have a partner and you want to do it on your own great yes no problem there it's probably the negative of that so it's rather than marrying badly or having a bad partner is is it's the negative. one thing you want to run screaming from run, screaming from the room that is your choice or your door you're about to open slam it shut and move on <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> joe um the final question i do ask everybody is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change so i think brave feminine leadership is really directed to the women who have come before us yeah. whether it's I'm reading about the first woman to study medicine at a local university or you know, the first woman to be a foreign correspondent and going into a war zone or the first woman to join an army or you know, there are so many firsts and these trailblazers I think who elbowed out and just made it happen through sheer grit, spit, and determination. I think that's um, I think that's brave feminine leadership historically. Now, I think brave feminine leadership is leading authentically, bringing our whole selves, our family, our narrative, our approach to work unapologetically and I think brave feminine leadership is reaching out a hand and taking a chance on emerging women around us and backing them and showing them that they can do it taking a risk on them so they will take a risk on themselves Joe, fantastic. I also have you to thank for the sensate 
I know you have a I know you have a thing each year where your your close friends get a, a gift from you, which is the thing you're raving about at the time. You mentioned the sensate. Mm-hmm. I got one. I just want to say thank you. Do you love it? I love it. I love it. I love it. I, every day I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I love it. I've only had it for a couple of weeks, but I love it. So to everyone in the audience, go and Google Sensate and find out what it is we're talking about. Joe, amazing to have you as part of the conversation. Thank you so much for adding your voice to the conversation. Melissa, thank you for starting and sustaining the conversation. I think what you're doing and shining a light on brave feminine leadership is an extraordinary gift to everybody. So thank you for what you're doing.